Hello and welcome to the Interfish Podcast, where we bring you the most compelling and interesting news in the seafood sector. I'm Editor-in-Chief Drew Cherry, joined by Executive Editor John Fiorillo. It's been a crazy run uh, of travel. It is show season again, and that means a lot of handshakes, uh, a lot of seeing uh, folks we haven't seen in a long time, uh, a lot of quiet corner conversations about what's happening in the in the, in the industry. So we uh, have been doing a lot of news gathering and uh, have a pretty good view of what's uh, on the industry's mind right now. Um, John, why don't we uh, kick off with uh, Boston? Um, I think both you and I and several other people in the industry felt like the show was back. Uh, felt like the show was, uh, you know, returned to its old form. Um, and uh, and yeah, it's uh, it's for me anyway. It seemed like a yeah a great great show and news and meetings and uh, a lot to be learned. What was your take? Yeah, I think that's pretty accurate. I mean, um, just the attendance was like the old days, and the the uh, exhibit hall was literally full from one end of the hall to the other, and that hasn't been that way in a little bit. Um, it just felt normal, you know, which <laughs> since uh, the last three years have felt anything but that, it just felt like a normal Boston. All the restaurants were packed at night, and um yeah so it was nice to see and people you didn't see many masks and people seemed more relaxed and you know kind of their old their old selves so uh from that perspective uh yeah it was it was really a nice event now i think that the the big events that sort of set the tone uh, everybody wanted to hold their M&A news to time it with the show. So people have figured out that that's a great time to catch people's attention. Uh, and in quick succession, we had uh, a few really, really big ones. Um, and uh, and you broke uh, you broke the Fortune International acquisition. Um, Fortune International, it's a, a seafood supplier and now gourmet food supplier as well. That's just gotten bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, and they made um, probably their biggest acquisition to date, $285 million company, uh, Boston Sword and Tuna, um, giving them access to uh, a whole suite of additional um, additional products that uh, Boston Sword and Tuna have, have uh, built, up, built up expertise in uh, over the past several years. So what's it, what's it going to mean for, for Fortune, John? Well, it gives them what they, you know, they've been growing this pipeline of distributors and specialty companies. And what they need is they need to fill that pipeline with some some real top quality seafood product. And um, this will give them uh, this will give them that from the East Coast for sure. Uh, the Boston Sword and Tuna it's a legit player, you know, 300 million ish, 34 million pounds a year. Um all the all the popular stuff swordfish salmon tuna scallops lobster so it seems like a very strategic buy for them and then um you know boston sword and tuna is i believe a fifth generation family so that kind of uh, dovetails nicely into Sean O'Scanlan's uh kind of outlook on things he likes these traditional family run businesses tend to be on the smaller side 
from an acquisition point of view. But, you know, since they announced their um, expansion plan in 2012, about a decade ago, this company has just been buying one smart buy after another and stacking them together. And, um, yeah, they've built, uh, they've built quite a little empire right now. And I imagine, um, there might be another one in this general, um, uh, philosophy. And by that, I mean, they might need more supply coming up, um, as if they keep going. So, um, you know, they're, Sean didn't say anything about any future acquisition, but um, this this one is really interesting from a supply point of view. Which, uh, as I said a minute ago, they they clearly need some supply to keep up with with all these uh, businesses that they're buying. Yeah, I mean, and it was one one acquisition after another, and the commonality is that they're all kind of consolidation of the U.S. Uh, and North American industry, which. I mean, the level of fragmentation continues to be so high. Um, but as you can see with these family-owned companies, you're getting to a place where people, maybe that next generation is, isn't going to um, to want to make that, that journey. Um, and just there's just a lot out there on the market, it seems right now, to, to, uh, to snap up. Um, the day prior to that, John, you broke another story on Southwind Foods to another – uh, another supplier, a big in frozen uh, items into major club stores and retailers, and Southwind acquired Cato Fisheries, and that's a, a California seafood processor. And kind of the same story, right? Is that they kind of were were there, um, you know, a family-owned company looking for a, a looking for an exit, and then Southwind's going to use that as a springboard to supply other other markets. Yeah, and in both these cases, you know, these companies have been working together for a while, so they know each other very well. They, um, you know, their operations are synergistic in the sense that um, you're not going in somewhere and, you know, changing a culture or anything like that. They, they, these companies know each other. They work in similar fashion. So, um, yeah, and you know, I didn't, I, it's certainly, I'm not saying it applies to either of these two transactions or any of the, the four that big ones that happened at the show, but I was trying to get some perspective from people at the show and I wasn't very successful, but my thought is, you know, we are at the post-COVID moment, let's say, knock on wood, you know, let's say it doesn't rear its ugly head in a, in a new way, but, and all, so many companies survived COVID. You meant, you know, a number thrived during COVID, so let's not forget that, and I'm talking seafood here, but a lot of them just survived, and they, they've come out of the other end uh, exhausted, probably weaker, and I'm wondering if this little this little surge that we saw is if there's something more behind it in the sense that the stronger companies that came out of COVID, the ones that came out stronger, if now there's a lot more opportunity them for them to bring in some of the ones that just have been exhausted during COVID and, and may not be as strong. I, and again, I'm not saying it's it's these transactions we're talking about but 
in in the broader picture, I wonder if if we're going to see that um, unfold. Yeah, I mean, it, it it's I wouldn't be I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of these companies that limp their way through, especially ones that are supplying the food service sector. Um, yeah, and like I said, if they if they made it through, how well did they make it through is the question. Um, and then just I'm just going down the list because there were so many, but Peter Pan Seafood also uh, made an acquisition, a smaller sort of bolt on. Um, remember, Peter Pan Seafood was uh, was acquired by uh, Roger May, who's been in the seafood industry a long, long time, uh, together with um, McKinley Capital and RRG Global Partners, uh, two uh, equity groups. And so, uh, you know, the the uh, Trappers Creek Smoking Company, um, I believe that gives them ins, John, into some of the club stores. Is that correct? Is Trappers Creek? It used to be in Costco. I don't know if it is anymore, but yeah, it used to be in Costco. I don't think it is anymore. At least in the the ones uh, out here on kind of the Pacific Northwest. But you know, this this goes along with what. Roger and the new owners said right from the get-go that they want to expand Peter Pan into a a value, you know, into more value-added product lines. Well, you know, you don't get much more value-added than smoked seafood. So um, they're going in the direction they promised uh, when they when they took over. So, um, but uh, yeah, they 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 have a few brands uh, under the company they just bought. So. They will have retail presence in that sense, and it comes at a good time. You know, uh, it's not best time to be in wild salmon as a commodity. So, um, yeah, we'll see where it goes. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so let's talk about the big one. Uh, the big one was Cook striking again. Um, actually, in the middle of linked already with a big, huge deal uh, that we were kind of tracking, and then all of a sudden. In comes the the really big deal, which is Cook, uh, the Canadian giant now that's got its tentacles everywhere across the world and in so many different species. Uh, Cook acquired Slade Gordon, and Slade Gordon is uh, one of the oldest seafood companies um, in the U.S., still operating seafood companies in the U.S., Family owned. Um, it is uh, one of the most high profile companies in North America, certainly in, in from an industry point of view. Um, they have uh, loads, hundreds of, of product lines um, in a lot of different retail uh, uh, areas uh, and food service as well. I mean, it's uh, just a huge, huge uh, uh, deal for Cook. So, John, uh, what is what does this mean now that Cook is now even deeper into distribution? It gives them great opportunity uh, for all their uh, pipeline of products, obviously into the into the market. I mean, it's we can barely keep up with Cook. Yeah, I mean, how do you? They're 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 growing at a rate un, unseen in this industry in my time. I. I've never seen a company continue to grow and they're not little tiny growth. They're giant growth spurts. And this one is, uh, it makes a lot of sense to me. Um, I could be wrong, but it makes a lot of sense because the bigger cook gets and the more diverse its portfolio of products and regions they source from, um, this just gives them that 
pipeline into the the more important end of the business, which is your customers, your retailers, your food service, your broadliners, um, and you know all those links are established firmly through Slade. I mean, Slade has, as you mentioned, been around for a long time, led by Kim Gorton, sharp, sharp CEO. Um, it, you know, it, I know year, uh, a few years ago it was it was struggling. I I don't know how it came out of COVID, um, but it seemed from the outside anyways that it, you know it had recovered well and was was strong nevertheless it is it is embedded into the um uh buy side of the business uh in the retail and food service uh categories and so they bought a great distributor is basically what they had and they didn't really have that so uh i don't know if glenn is done yet or if this is, you know, part one of something else. So, eh, I mean, I I would assume that it's just <laughs> it's just the latest move. I mean, he's obviously cooks now. Uh, I mean, there are a number of acquisitions we put together a list that that will show you in a couple of stories there um, that uh, kind of track just how they've grown and over the last five to ten years, it's just been uh, a massive upward curve linked with Nueva Pescanova, the Spanish seafood giant now. So uh, there's bound to be more. Um, it's just, I, I guess the question is what areas are they most interested in, in growing? And then we'll, we'll kind of see, but no doubt we're going to see more from, from Glenn cook this year. Um, but this was a really big one. So um, let's move over to the Power 100, the Seafood Power 100. We haven't put one of these out, John, in I think about three years, and we figured it was time. There has been so much change. It's always fun to put these together. It's always challenging. There's always a lot of arguments that could be made about who we choose. Um, how do we do it? Well, how do you measure power? Uh, I, I, uh, it's something where, uh, you could argue back and forth a million different ways. And we have, uh, over the years about who's belonged on the list, but we did our best to be, uh, broad geographically. Uh, we focused on who was controlling the major sets of species or the major political decisions, uh, we did not have uh, financial, we made the decision to not have financial companies on there. Um, but anyway, it sparked uh, a lot of discussion, debate. We've gotten feedback about our choices. Um, John, what, what do you think, uh, is there any sort of through line this year that was different than when we did it a few years ago? Um, I, I mean, there was some turnover. I wouldn't say there was a lot of turnover so um you know there's i would maybe translate that to mean there's been some stability at these you know powerful positions within the industry um no overall i think you know if you were if you were to to say well how did they come up with this list well if you go to major events around the world uh related to seafood there's a pretty darn good chance you're going to see uh overwhelming percentage of these people at these events and that that is you know testament to their influence and their um stature in the industry so 
while it's always open to debate, like you said, I think uh, uh, we we hit the right notes, you know, for the most part. And um, yeah, these are the people who <laughs> take a good look at them because these are the people who are steering your industry. And um, if you don't know them, you probably should. Yeah. Yeah, agreed. I mean, I think, you know, I was surprised there was quite a few, there was quite a few changes, um, I thought, um, as we were putting together the list, um, some really big folks that dropped out that, um, boy, we're used to having on that list for a long, long time. Um, so there were some changes there. Um, some more younger faces, I think. That's one thing that you can see, quote unquote, younger. Um a few more women, but not many. Um, you know, we we obviously when you are in the C-suite at a major company, um, you know, it, it wasn't just C-suite that we had in the in the uh, in the Power 100, but it was mostly C-suite. And people have argued and said, "Well, the real power behind the company is X, Y, and Z." And you know what? Typically, or maybe not typically, but a lot of times that's the case. A lot of times there's uh, maybe the chairman's pulling the strings or even the COO is maybe doing a little more of the heavy lifting. That's just how it is. However, when you have that CEO title, you are at the top. Uh, and so you you ultimately have that power, whether or not you're allowed to exercise it or if you do exercise it, I guess, is um, you know open for debate. But... Um, but uh, but female CEOs, you know, continue to be uh, lacking in the seafood industry. I mean, it's just gonna be some time to make that changeover. Um, up at the top, Teresa Lugberryord and uh, Helena Zivduki from Scredding and uh, Cargill, respectively, sit really high up on the top. But um, but you know, it's it's down there still. The industry has a lot of work to do. Um, to, to change that. You're seeing more regionally. You've seen some, um, some move on that to bring in younger people, uh, you know, female leaders. I'm thinking of, uh, you know, of, of Grieg and some of the other salmon companies. You're seeing them move some, some women into um, more management roles, which is good to see. Um, but I think fair to say we've got a long way to go. You know, I think one of the one of the areas that we got uh, criticism for that I'm going to cop to, and, you know, I think they're, it's changing. Part of it is our own need to educate ourselves. And part of it is, I think, that, that engagement with uh, – with the wider industry a bit more, and that's in Asian seafood companies. It's very, very difficult to um, to zero in on who it is that holds power in China, for example. Um, I think India. There was a couple names there that we really should have had on there. Um, we'll remember it for next time. I think there's some good arguments to be made about um, how we might get a clearer picture of the power dynamics in Asia. So, you know, we, we will work on that. And for the next time, we'll maybe have a little bit, uh, a little bit broader, uh, palette. Um, and who knows by the next time we do it, whenever that is, uh, we'll probably have quite a few different faces as well. Yeah. I think that was a fair, um, assessment that we, we heard from, you know, several people that, that matter. Um, and yeah, I mean, there with these things you know there always is a limit to some degree about how 
bulletproof you can be on everything. But um, yeah, I, uh, you know, we've done this. I can't remember how many we've done, but every year we learn a little more. Uh, and uh, if we're doing our jobs right, kind of keep perfecting it. And, you know, it'll never be perfect, but um, it could always be better. Yeah. Well, it was a lot of fun to put together. Um, everyone is more than welcome to uh, to give us feedback on it. We love to hear it um, when we're wrong, right? Uh, otherwise, we heard a lot of people at Boston um, coming up to us, and it's all over uh, LinkedIn and social. You can see people um, kind of commenting on one another, um, either congratulating each other or making you know comments that somebody should have been on there. Um, and that's great. It is subjective. It's part of what we're trying to do is uh, is generate discussion, debate, and actually make the industry a little bit better by getting everyone talking about these things. Um, so, okay, back to Boston just a minute. So we had our uh, our leadership breakfast there. We do our leadership events most of the shows. Um, and we had a really interesting panel in some ways, one of the more diverse panels we have in terms of sectors. And that made it a lot of fun because everybody kind of approached it from a different, uh, point of view. Um, so John and myself were, uh, moderating this event, um, up on stage, uh, we had uh, Sydney Ajambuja. He is a director of strategic sourcing at Red Lobster. We had Cora Campbell, the CEO of Silver Bay Seafoods. Uh, we had Travis Larkin, president and CEO of Seafood Exchange. We had Einar Gustafsson, the CEO of American Seafoods. Um, Anna Vistendahl, the global head of seafood at DNB. It's a really, really interesting panel. So, John, what were some of the themes that were, were hit on uh, that stuck out to you? Well, I'll let you elaborate on this one a little bit more because you were talking directly with Cora about it. But referring to what you just said a few minutes ago, um, maybe the lack of women in leadership roles in seafood and you and Cora discussed that. And that, that was a really interesting section of the uh, of the panel or you know, a portion of the panel. So uh, that that struck me. Um, I think there was there were some comments about eco labels uh both from uh the red lobster from sydney from red lobster and cora again that um you know they they kind of tell you about the frustration and growing um just growing like anger i think towards all these labels and having to um, deal with them from a paperwork point of view and all these other things and, and how the labels really are starting to seem, um, very porous and weak in, in these times of climate change. I, I think it was Cora who said, Hey, look, you know, we do what the management tells us to do, which is stop fishing, uh, a resource. And then we get penalized for it by having the label yanked she said but that's exactly how the management's supposed to work right if 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 there's something wrong wrong with the resource management steps in and says time out you know we're not going to fish anymore so she was really frustrated about that and um and sydney too had some 
pointed comments uh, about about labels. So that was really interesting. The other one that caught my ear was uh, we when Einer was asked about um, you know the U.S. Uh, Pollock fleet versus this you know brand new fleet being built up in Russia, and uh, his response was bravo you know to the russians for building the fleet because he would prefer to see really high-end quality product uh in the market not only from the u.s which is traditionally been producing high-end uh stuff but from russia uh which has often just sent product to china for reprocessing and then had all this twice frozen uh stuff in the market that the alaskans had to compete against and educate buyers about why one was different than the other so he was very um supportive of this and thought uh you know um it would lift the entire market ultimately if russia ever finishes this uh modernization i mean they've done They've done some boats, but uh, their ambitions are to do uh, quite a huge modernization. I can't remember how big, but so yeah, those uh, those things pop to mind immediately. Yeah, I mean, I I think that in in general the the mood on the market was kind of interesting. I mean, people were pretty frank about um, you know I think long term, uh, obviously it's hard to not believe in seafood's promise uh, if you look at all the macro trends but in the short term you know there was a lot of um a lot of concern and a lot of uh, a lot of expected changes going on i know uh travis larkin with shrimp in particular you know it's it's a real frustration that the boom and bust cycle of shrimp just doesn't seem like it's going to end anytime soon um and that um you know, I I think that it really undercuts the promise of that species. You know, it's still it's still the most consumed species in in several Western markets, or or the second most, and um, it's uh, it's 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 on the up and up in production. Um, but it's uh, but in terms of its uh, of the boom and, and bust cycle of of when prices get high um seeding too many shrimp and then you get you get disease and uh you get a a bust on the uh on the volumes i mean that that seems to be uh, a trend that that plagues the the sector the other thing too that i thought was very interesting that was a theme that kind of hits multiple species is cold storage and i mean every single uh a person on that stage mentioned this um that there is a the cold stores in the u.s and in europe are getting full um their species i mean shrimp's a great one if these species don't move they sit there in cold storage and that's not it's no small thing that's a cost because you have to pay for every minute that your product is sitting there in cold store and it was the same with wild salmon uh cora campbell mentioned that um it's it's a big challenge right now so even if the logistics issues have been maybe straightened out a little bit um cold storage and and moving products is still a huge huge issue 
Yeah, and, and that's not going away anytime soon. So, um, yeah, every everybody mentioned that, and no matter which species, they seem to be struggling with that issue. So, uh, it'll be. I mean, there's just not enough capacity for <laughs> all the product that is needed needs to be stored, and this is still, uh, you know, part of the supply chain disruption and. I mean, you can link it all the way back to COVID, I, I, I guess. But, um, you know, the, it's going to take time for all this to wrinkle or to iron out. And uh, we'll see that the one thing that one thing you don't want to see is lower consumer demand. And I'll speak for the U.S. right now, although the same is going on in much of Europe lower consumer demand for seafood because then you're not getting any pull through you know you're not you're not getting it pulled through the retailers or even the food service outlets so the the stuff in cold storage has nowhere to go so um it would be really really nice to see some of these retail sales figures that we report every month it'd be really nice to see those start to move in a positive way and we did just a little bit in february but it looks like it's probably was tied to valentine's day and uh the super bowl which are you know big seafood celebration times where volumes pick up anyway but march will tell us a little bit more but it would be really really good news to people if we could see some pull through um happening yeah well uh we will find out how things uh, trend and we'll look at the macro economy and see which way things are going which it seems like a roller coaster um but uh but we'll, we'll see as the year goes on Reminder, if you haven't seen our Power 100 that we referenced in the podcast, you can go to intrafish.com. You'll find it there on the homepage. Uh, you can also sign up for our newsletters there. We've got plenty to choose from, including John Fiorillo's new Wave newsletter on retail and food service markets for subscribers. So uh, with that, we'll wrap it up, and we'll look forward to speaking next time.